welcome back to a woman's place um i'm a little bit hoarse today i was singing um i seem to have lost my voice completely so i'm i'm really sad i don't know what's going on with it i keep hitting flat notes but um welcome back to a woman's place anyway and for listening to me rant there a little bit um i'm christina and this is circa hi guys Hello. Um, we are going to talk a little bit today about republic, uh, republicanism, republicanism, and um, just to give everyone an idea of what um, this form of government is, because on the run up to the centenary of the Irish Civil War, and also it's Michael Collins's anniversary this year isn't it in august August, yeah the big fella i think there's going to be a commemoration i think um trying to understand like like i think a lot of us including myself have been like living in the world not knowing what all of these systems are or even the the root of it and we kind of go along and pretend like we know but like i think i know more about american the american system than the irish system but anyway um so i just thought it would be we just thought it would be important to like um maybe give some a little class a little a little politics class um on this form of government that we our our ancestors the ancestors fought for so um without further ado circle's gonna take us take us off take take is that the right phrase He's going to start us off. And I'm going to ask, yeah, and I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask the stupid questions that you have been always wanted to ask. So, okay, so today we're going to talk about um, different systems of government and we're focusing on this episode um, on republicanism um, and the idea of a republic. So just the first thing is like democracy, which is where you vote for people to represent you in your government. Um is one of a number of different forms of governments. So traditionally, democracy isn't hasn't been the norm. Um, you have uh, governance by elites, which is um, one form of government. You've governed by one person or government by tyrants. And the most common throughout the whole of history has been um, a monarchy. Most people associate early democracy with ancient Athens, and that's where the word democracy comes from. It comes from two um, Greek words, demos, which means common people, and kratos, which means strength, and I'm probably butchering those two, the pronunciation of both of those words. Mm. But um, Is that Marcus, this, Marcus Aurelius? Is that around his time? Uh, no, this would be before that. Mm. So, uh, like, when they started with democracy, it would have been, like, the 6th century BC. So, like, the Roman Republic... Um, was the Roman Empire would have still been ruled by kings at that stage. So okay, no okay, but, but okay, let's pause for a second and and take into account I present to you Gladiator the film. Okay? Now in Gladiator the film, he's talking to Marcus Aurelius and Marcus Aurelius wants the guy, can't remember his name now, to like make Rome a republic again. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's just I just wanted to put that out there that I know that. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, I just wanted uh, to say because um, I, it, the when you're talking about governance by the the elites, people would have heard this word before. It's um aristoc- aristocracy, 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 aristocracy. By one person is a monarchy, and by tyrants is a tyranny. So you're saying that like most of the government forms used to be monarchies by one person. 
by one person yeah. yeah exactly and we're going to talk a little bit more about monarchies um in a minute but just to talk about democracy um in Athens starting around the 6th century BC all landowners were allowed to speak at an assembly and they were allowed to like voice their concerns and give out and kind of have a think about what they were going to do about their problems um, and kind of for traditional western history everybody's like oh the Greeks came up with democracy weren't they fantastic weren't they brilliant and don't get me wrong they were fantastic and brilliant but actually like prior to that when humans still lived in kind of small groups of familial bonds um, anthropo- anthropologists like they know that it, because we see it in modern hunter-gatherer societies that was democracy as well everybody would have a sit down and they would get like the elders of the village and they would talk to the elders of the village about their problems so like that's Just a form of democracy that. as well and basically the anthropologists um we know from modern hunter-gatherer societies that they all practiced forms of democracy it was only when they got bigger um and into say thousands of people as opposed to hundreds of people that they required a different type of government because mm-hmm. if there's only 150 people living in your society you can easily all meet up and have a chat you know it's not the same as as say Athens where there would have been thousands upon thousands of people living there and it would have just been a logistical nightmare for them all to meet up and have a chat mm-hmm. so that's kind of where the modern idea of democracy comes from is from ancient Greece um Iceland and the Isle of Man have interesting claims to their democracy. Um, Each of them has a parliamentary body that is over a thousand years old. Uh, But because Iceland only got its independence um, from Denmark in 1944 um, and because um, the Isle of Man is not a country in its own right, they don't tend to make the claim to the world's oldest democracy. The Vikings who like inhabited Iceland, they had a form of democracy where a bit like the Greeks, they'd all meet up the lads um, who were in charge would all meet up and have a chat. So some form of democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in ancient Ireland, we had a system called the Tua system where landowners and the master of professions, so um, like the ones who gave out the kind of, for want of a better word, certification to the up and coming people in their profession or, or in their trade would meet once a year to have a chat think about war or peace and uh, accept the election of a new re or a new king. Um, and in ancient Ireland, they practiced, they practiced a tanist system. So it was where instead of just because your dad's the king, you get to be the king. Um, they would have an election for who they thought would be the best king. But you had to be descended within four generations of a previous king. Mm. You couldn't just be any old Joseph up off the street. Um, and it often alternated between lines of cousins. So for one king would be, say, your mom's side of the family and another king, he'd be your dad's side of the family. And yeah. that was just the kind of really common way that they did it. And there was about 100 to us across Ireland. So it was a, quite a complicated system. Um, right. And uh, just to um, summarize here now, so like when we're going into the next bit, democracy is the... Democracy is the... Because I think people are confused, you know, maybe we don't. It's the system of government where the eligible members of the state, whoever they are, elect uh, representatives and those representatives go to a form of government. Democracy is is an ideal, right? Like republicanism is the system. Um, Not necessarily. 
Um, like there's there's different forms. Like I suppose the original democracy was not what we would consider democracy today, obviously, because only landowners were allowed mm. to make their point. We tend to think of democracy, as you said today, as an ideal where every person of eligible age gets to vote. Um, and as we're going to see through many of our podcasts, that's not the case. Uh, Republicanism is doesn't really have um, that much more to do with democracy than some of the other forms of government, like because republicanism was formed as a um, as a kind of an opposite to monarchy. Mm-hmm. So, like republicanism isn't necessarily hundred percent intertwined with democracy. Like they're not a, they're not two interchangeable words. Yes. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Yeah, no, my point was just that, like, democracy, like, they would have still considered that they were doing democracy back then because they would have only considered men to be landowners. You know what I mean? Like, oh, we all have a vote, sure. All of the landowners have a vote, sure. Isn't that democracy? Because they didn't really see the laborers or servants or whatever as, like, people. People and needing to have a vote you know we have with the expansion of democracy we've also expanded who we regard as people definitely and i i think that that's like really different from what i was saying about the tribes and their democracy Mm -hmm. because obviously there would have been tribes with with, um, slaves and stuff but you would have had more of a chance to speak back then, even if you had a lower social status than you would have in Greece or in many of the democracies that we even think about today. How they started, they would have given less people the right to vote than even the people in Greece had. Mm -hmm. So it's like an ever-evolving... Yeah, it's like an ever-expanding voter base, I suppose you'd say. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. we're going to talk more about that um, in a minute. But... Where did this whole idea come from? Um, I would say that it came as in as an opposite or an antithesis to a monarchy. So a monarchy is when is this sorry you now are, are you talking about uh, democracy or republicanism? Republicanism, sorry, yeah. republicanism. Um, so monarchies were like once the norm because of this um a, this kind of idea of what was called the divine right of kings mm-hmm. so particularly in christian um countries there was this idea that the king or queen was directly appointed by god mm-hmm. so um their family was chosen by god to be the the representative of his country basically and mm-hmm. um, they really believed things like this kind of all goes back to um ancient rome where constantine who was fighting this guy to be emperor they met um and the night before they met for battle constantine had a dream that said god told him to go to this place called milvian bridge and he went to milvian bridge and all the opposite army he tried to cross the bridge couldn't fell into the river and died and it was kind of deemed that like god won that victory for him you know, he had this dream that God told him to go to the bridge and that's where he'd have the battle and the God wanted him to win. So God wanted him to be king. And so from that, this idea came forward that like, if you manage to fight battles and become king, that's because God wanted you to be king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So obviously God is happy that you are king because he made you king and he chose your family. So they almost always come from like a hereditary line of rulers, except for obviously when um, you'd have things like, say, the Lancasters and the Tudors uh, fighting in England um, 
and obviously the Tudors became, were the winners of that. Um, they would have believed that God chose them to be the ruler. Um, mm-hmm. Their power was completely absolute, so you don't question them, you you don't ever refuse them. But they always had like advisors, you know, like councils mm-hmm. of advisors, and some kings were far more um, likely to listen. I'll just point out here that the this is something I learned or realized from watching The Crown. Um, this I think they said it explicitly, or it could have been my sister, either or. Um, but there's a reason that the Queen okay, first of all, it's an ascension to the throne, isn't that what it's called? It's like yeah, ascension. So she ascended like the only person you ever hear about ascending into heaven is like Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, you know, like Mary, Mary the the saints, the or the you know, any of the disciples, they ascended into heaven. So ascension is literally the word for when a queen is made a queen or a or a, or a king made a queen. And all and so and in the crown they pointed out like there's a reason that that ceremony takes place in Westminster Abbey and not in the Houses of Parliament like that ritual is actually so tied to religion and the the you know the 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 separation of church and state in that moment is not is not real you know what I mean it's like she it's still a religious ritual that yeah, is England happening. England is a bit different though. Uh, England is a little bit different from other monarchies because mm. England has a constitutional monarchy or had until very recently. But a I mean, I mean, monarchy. I mean, in, oh, I know what in you're the saying. past, in the past. Yeah. When there would have but been even monarchy. in the past. Yeah. Even in the past, like obviously the queen, uh, king, whoever ascends. And I, I get what you mean by that. But um, theirs is slightly different from most other monarchies around the world mm. because of the Magna Carta. Um, which was a document signed in like the 1200s, which basically said that um, the the government can remove any monarch they feel is not acting in the best interest of the people. And likewise, the monarch can remove any government they feel is not acting in the best interest of the people. So England's just a little bit different from other monarchies like France or Spain. Mm. Um, but in, in most monarchies, their power is absolute um, and they rule with a council that they sometimes listen to and they sometimes don't. And their power is still absolute in monarchies around the world, like Brunei, Saudi Arabia or Oman. And it's basically like they call the government when they want to. They dissolve the government when they want to. And there are um, there's nobody really to say no to them, you know. Mm-hmm. And this was so common throughout um, history in Europe. Um, and most of the, the countries that we know today were once kingdoms of some sort. Um, so all the way through like the early middle ages up to the late middle ages the pope crowned the the king so you ascended to the throne and then the pope kind of gave you like you know a pat on the back to be like yeah we're happy with you um, and that yeah. was another sign of their absolutism and yeah. their kind That's of another will connection will from god yeah mm. but during the renaissance um a lot of um, ancient writings from Greece and Rome were rediscovered and they were talking about democracy and about republicanism. And so some of the um, kind of more interesting thinkers from the Renaissance, like Machiavelli, um, he he saw tyrants in his midst. Like he saw them um, all over Italy because Italy was made up of dozens of little kingdoms and some of them were What do you mean by, by tyrant now? So the classic kind of um, the classic kind of tyrant is essentially like a dictator, basically. 
And um, that's different from a monarch how? That's different from a monarch because usually a tyrant is a populism um, rides to his, his victory on populism. Okay. As opposed to a divine right of, of kings. Um, so he could so, be voted, they, they, he could be voted in or like, because um, you hear all the time, sorry now to be interrupting, but you know, in like you hear all the time in movies or whatever, you'd hear like, oh, he was a tyrant and they're talking about a king. Yes. Yeah. So a tyrant is just um, like a, a, a cruel and oppressive ruler is, is technically what that means, right? But what it is, is that um, there's two kind of definitions. So there's like an old Greek definition, which is um, a person who has absolute uh, rule. And I know we were going to say like, that's just like a monarchy, but um, is often that somebody who has usurped a legitimate ruler's right. sovereignty. Right. So yeah. in ancient Greece, it was it was more about the fact that say um, somebody, and it doesn't have to be that they even take the position of emperor. It just means that like they're the puppet master. You know mm-hmm. that every, like it could be that you don't actually have a, a position, but you're pulling the strings from behind the scenes. Mm. Um. So it was that someone who rules without law using extreme and cruel methods on his people and this is um was like like a despot i suppose you'd say mm-hmm. and can you give us an example in modern times that we would understand or has Hitler? there been an example it, but he so okay yeah okay so, yeah like a modern tyrant would be somebody who is committing crimes against humanity okay like so i'm sure we could think of dozens of, of people I'm sure we could think of dozens of people who were um, who who are tyrants, but Machiavelli, when he lived, he he saw a lot of tyrants because when he lived, he lived in Italy. Um, when Italy was broken up into loads of different kingdoms, and he also had the papal kingdom. And at the time that he lived, a lot of the popes were doing some really really bad shit, poping, like popping around the place, being popes. Like they were doing bad shit and they were excusing what their families were doing. And he saw this like as a form of tyranny. Mm-hmm. So he he says that um, that basically if you have a tyrant, you you're never going to have um, you're, you're never going to have liberty. So even if you yourself benefit like from the tyrant in the way, say, you're a wine merchant and he loves wine and so you sell loads of wine. That 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 doesn't mean you're free. Like, that doesn't mean, doesn't mm-hmm. have anything to do with your freedom. Just because you're rich doesn't mean that you're free. And um, you also see it in the Divine Comedy, um, Dante's Divine Comedy, <laughs> um, who he puts tyrants in the seventh circle of hell, mm-hmm. which is, like, you know, bad shit. Like So basically, there was a lot of tyrants um, throughout history and um, they they all started to be kind of brought back up to the surface with uh, the, the rediscovery of all of these documents from um, ancient Greece and so he started like kind of not him by himself but part of what Machiavelli did was he started a movement about classical republicanism and basically um, it was against all of those small states in Italy that were r- ruled by like landed aristocracy or the a king or the pope. And he was basically saying to people, as I said, you, like, you're not free. You you think you are, but you're not. So that that was more like a ripple on the surface, like what Machiavelli did. Like it was important at the time. But then because of all of the advances of the Renaissance, it kind of quiets down for a few years. And, and what, quiets... what, what, what time period are we talking about here now? 
So the Renaissance is like 1400 to 1560. Um, so those kind of 150 years there, um, people began rediscovering things from ancient Greece and Rome and, and writings and things like that. But then it, throughout the kind of 1600s, it kind of went a little bit quiet, I suppose. Um, people had a lot of shit going on in the 1600s. There when was, was Black re- Death again? 1320. Okay, so there was like a lot of social upheaval and then in the, was it the 1500s? It was the witch trials? Yeah, so like throughout the, the, the late 1500s and into the 1600s, there was like really bad famine, there was witch trials, mm-hmm. there was like a, a kind of, um, not a climate change, but like a, a couple of very, very wet years and then followed by like a couple of really, really dry years. So there was like a lot of food insecurity. People yeah. didn't have time to be thinking about republicanism when you're thinking about your next meal, you know. So basically what was happening was like, basically MacValue was hanging out and he was like, lads, these lads are fucking taking the piss. Like yes. what's going on? There's some old, old sketch. There's some old, like, look at this video, lads. Like, look, we could do this. And everyone's like, yeah, it looks interesting, but like famine. So yeah. we'll talk to you later. Pretty, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. They were like, um, we're, we don't have time for that right now, Machiavelli. I'm yeah. like starving to death. Yeah. In, so, two, in two generations time, my, my, my grandmother is going to be burnt at a stake. Like, we'll talk about your ideals later. Precisely. Um, there was also a lot of like you had the, the the Reformation as well. So like, you know, people are more concerned with how is this going to affect me right now? I'm hungry and um, I need some I need shelter or whatever. And then you had the huge social upheaval of the Reformation where you had like, you know, wars all over Europe. So people were just like, OK, we need to defeat our enemies, get some munch and then we'll talk about republicanism. Mm-hmm. So we don't really see a lot of uh, a more chat about republicanism until the 1700s when we see these ideas develop into like what we would consider to be kind of a more modern republicanism um, during the Enlightenment. So this is like the 1700s, throughout the 1700s, um, there was a lot of advances in like not just there was the Industrial Revolution, um, but also there was advances in things like medicine, things like health and things like um, like realizing maybe that the person who is poor is not poor because they're lazy Mm -hmm. that maybe they're poor because of social reasons Mm -hmm. um but one of the biggest kind of doctrines of the enlightenment was individual liberty religious tolerance and absolute opposition to the absolute monarchy and we saw this obviously in the french revolution culminated in the french revolution but like theorists like voltaire and jean-jacques rousseau they they wrote about these ideas that you this is the rule of the few over the many and it should be the rule of the many over the few mm-hmm. you know it was the basic basic ideas of what we would think of republicanism now you know um pb shelley like ye are many we are few right. or we are many ye are few and um, there were loads of short-lived republics around europe where say there might be like a king of a small german nation and the king dies or the king does something awful and the people rise up against him and um, for sometimes 10 years, sometimes 20 years, sometimes a month, there's a republic in that country until the soldiers come back in or until a neighboring um, monarchy sends in soldiers. So yeah. you had like um, Oliver Cromwell in England. Um, so Oliver Cromwell was the head of the Commonwealth of England, which was basically a republic after they chopped the head off um, King Charles II. But like most most of the most of the republics in Europe had their monarchies restored after a few years, like as I said, they they, they maybe lasted a while, but eventually the monarch came back. 
um, which is what happened. The return of the monarch. Yeah, exactly. Which is what happened in Cromwell's case as well. So, Wait, there... what happened in Cromwell's case? So Cromwell was the head of... Um, Cromwell fought the English Civil War. Um, never mind all the shit that he did when he came here. We'll save that for a whole other podcast. But uh, Cromwell, um, when he was like around, their king was King Charles II. And King Charles II was a little bit of a tyrant in that um, he didn't call Parliament for 11 years at one stage. And all he ever did when he did call Parliament was demand taxes. Um, he was also married to a Catholic, which they were not about at all. Uh, they really, really, really didn't want him to be married to a Catholic. Um, and that was kind of really, to be honest with you, probably one of the bigger reasons. Now, obviously, he wasn't a great king either. But eventually, anyway, they chopped off his head. Right. And after they chopped off his head, they were like, who will we put in charge? Oh, we'll put Cromwell in charge because Cromwell is a Puritan who doesn't drink alcohol. He doesn't um, he doesn't debauch himself like they believed that King Charles II did. And to, to be fair, now King Charles second like he was having parties all over the place like he was mm. like just throwing money away do you know what I mean um and they, they thought that Cromwell wouldn't be like that so for around uh 10 years Cromwell ruled what was essentially a republic he called it the Commonwealth of England but that's it was a republic because it had elected representatives and the guy at the top was not a king um but eventually royalists went to get another king basically <laughs> Uh, they went away and they were like, we need a new king. Who will we get? Because we don't like this guy for a myriad of reasons that I'm not going to go into right now. But yeah, the monarchy got restored then in England. Okay. So, and the same thing happened even in France, like after the French Revolution um, and Napoleon, like the monarchy was restored after that. You know, um, it, would it happened be correct. a lot. I'm just going to do, not hypothesize, but make a summary here like okay so when you're talking about the central doctrine of the enlightenment was individual liberty religious tolerance and opposition to absolute monarchy and we talk about i think we talk about in the enlightenment so much um but and we kind of like it's like ooh enlightenment you know but ultimately two two out of three of those things for sure are religious tolerance is like you know it means something different back then than it does now so to now religious tolerance would mean like we're tolerant of all religions, um, no matter what your faith, that essentially would have meant, okay, well, Protestantism is taking off. They want power now. So they want, they're promoting this idea of religious tolerance to like stop, I suppose, like violence against them. I think possibly in... You see, you, you have to think now of Voltaire and Jean-Jacques Rousseau, like who are the kind of big thinkers at this time. They're French, right? So they're Catholics. Mm-hmm. So they don't have anything to lose or gain, really, by mm-hmm. talking about religious tolerance because they live in a Catholic country. Um, okay. There's really not that many Protestants around. So, but in other countries, certainly, like in Fra- in Germany after the Nine Years' War, um, they had to basically put in a thing that said that if you're of a different religion than your king, he can't use that against you. Right. Because some of the German states became Protestant and some of them became Catholic. And opposition, but it also applied to Jewish people. Yeah. Opposition to applied, absolute monarchy here. We're also talking about like, we're also talking about like a resistance of Catholicism. Like that's what, you know, because the monarchy before was Catholic, right? Before Henry. 
Yeah, but also like all of the German princes and kings that became Protestant, they still ruled by divine rule. Okay. So they were like, like the Protestants okay. love a bit of divine rule as well, don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Not yeah, all yeah. down to the Catholics right. at all. But I think the big thing for the religious the whole religious tolerance thing was just because like so many people died so needlessly mm-hmm. just because I we believe in seven sacraments and they believe in five sacraments. Mm-hmm. Do you know, like fuck off. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that was yeah. their biggest thing about it. It was like just fucking stop killing each other over this stupid shit. Right. Good. But they also had like a really strong emphasis on the scientific method. And I think that it started to occur to them that actually the king is just a dude. Mm-hmm. There's he doesn't have superpowers. He's not fucking magic. So he's just a man, you know, okay. and men can be wrong. Okay. So I think that was another part of that kind of um, so, individual liberty. When you're talking here about like, so the short-lived, so we're we're talking about, in around this time we're talking about short-lived republic. So it's like people are making a burst for de- democracy. You know, they're making a burst for republics and then they're quashed again by the king or the queen. Um, yeah. So it's like these little, I don't know if you, if you ever watch, I think a great visual, and I'm sure people have watched this. Have you seen like um the COVID COVID the COVID tracker like a video that shows you mm-hmm. where the hotspots are? Like they like burst and then they go down and then they burst again yeah. and then they might go down and it's like this. It's like this, um, but obviously in far more slow motion than that. But it's like it's like clusters of it and then it's it's suppressed and it clusters again and they grow and it spreads. So we're seeing basically kind of like the first, what's the word? I suppose the first clusters of republicanism. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm just, I'm not going to get into American, um, I'm not going to get into the American side of it right now, Mm -hmm. but it it was at this time that kind of swirlings began in America. And what is this time? They were reading, so the 17, like the kind of 1750s onwards, the Americans were looking at what was going on and the writings from France and they were like, hmm, that is appealing. But we'll talk more about American republicanism uh, in another podcast. Um, yeah. So well, then you have the French Revolution in 1798 and that is a shockwave like, that was heard all around Europe. Like kings, they, they, they stormed the Bastille, they took it and they locked the king and his family up. And they said, mm-hmm. you are staying here until we decide what to do with you. Mm-hmm. And then they chopped his head off, you know, and all of the other monarchies around Europe were literally like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. This yeah. is not good. My so girl, sent- Marie Antoinette, also got slated in the press and she we're, we're redeeming Marie Antoinette in 2022. But continue. So they, they, I kind of have an idea what, she, what you're talking about. But yeah. anyway, um, the, they, so they like sent troops to their borders. Some of them even sent troops into France um, to protect their, their power. They didn't want that idea to spread, but it did spread. It spread into lots of other countries around Europe, but a lot of them were very brutally put down. Um, and like, sorry, now I just all, have to close my window because can you hear the wind? Does that Christ, there's tractors and trailers and wind and rain going on outside. Continue. Fairly shitty day. Yeah. Um. So the French Republic inspired the French Revolution inspired lots of other revolutions around Europe, but the French Revolution 
was really the only one that kind of stuck. And even like stuck is a bad word because like they had a period that's called the reign of terror. And, you know, I it was not good. Like they went kind of bananas and they killed an awful lot of people um, that didn't need to. I know no one needs to be. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Like they mm-hmm. kind of went overboard on it. And this um, this took a really, really long time to settle. But one thing that happened as the French Republic was set, was settling was that people in Ireland were looking over at France going, hmm, I like the cut of your jib. This, the, can I, um, culturally, France and Ireland, I was going to say it earlier, but I let it slip. The word re in Tua, when you were talking about the king, like in French, it's roi, R-O-I. In Irish, it was R-I. There's like a huge French-Irish connection that has spanned back like centuries. A lot of our words, even like Christian, um, cuisine, they're very similar. Like there's there's a lot of like language borrowing from um, France. But the French are Celts and mm-hmm. we're Celts. Right, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. You know, it wouldn't be wouldn't wouldn't be too dissimilar. But one of the things that Ireland and France have have had in common since the Reformation is that we're both Catholic countries, mm-hmm. and so um, and the French it, came to our aid a lot. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's actually what I'm going to talk about now, and mm-hmm. this is where we start moving away from modern republicanism into specifically Irish republicanism. And Irish republicanism is different um, in a number of ways from. Um, modern republicanism. So when the French Revolution happened in France, the Irish were looking across the water and they were like, I like the cut of your jib sham. What have you got? Mm-hmm. How did you manage this? Yeah. We got one like, of ours. We got one of them tyrants. We, yeah, we, need to get we don't rid- like we, him much. No, we don't. So just going to put you in the shoes of, of, um, of Ireland at this time. So this is like the 1790s. Ireland is obviously very poor, very rural, uh, but we do have our own parliament in Dublin. So we have our own parliament in Dublin and it is full of what's called in Ireland the Protestant ascendancy. So can I just pause there? Sorry. Yeah. Cromwell has come and gone and he's like wrecked the gaff, right? Yeah, he's okay. gone he's gone like a hundred years now. Okay. Um so he's he's been gone for ages. But we have this is like Ireland that is rife with landlordism. So we have absentee landlords um who just kind of like fly the land and fly the people and take everything that they can without giving anything back. This is also the time of the penal laws where you are penalised for not being Church of Ireland. Mm -hmm. So we've got like three, four religions in Ireland at this time, like uh, Catholics, which make up the vast majority. Then you have uh, Presbyterians, which is a form of Protestantism, Protestantism, which was popularised by a guy called John Calvin, who ended up in Scotland, and a lot of Ulster Scots were Presbyterians. Calvin, so they yeah. are, Was there two not, Calvins? Not that I know of, no. no. Okay. Um, there was um, a very, very small number of Jews, and, and then there was uh, about 10% of the population were Church of Ireland, mm-hmm. so Protestantism of the English crown, essentially. Mm-hmm. And if you were not Church of Ireland, so that applies to the Presbyterians and the Catholics, the penal laws applied to you, restricting you from holding government or military positions, restricting Catholic inheritances, um, restricting what jobs you could do, how much acres you could have, what kind of horse you could have, like an awful lot of stuff. And also the Presbyterians had to pay a tithe to the Church of Ireland. So they had to give one tenth of their income to a church that they didn't believe in. 
Um, these laws were brought in to destroy the Catholic gentry that were left over after Cromwell. So anybody who Cromwell didn't manage to completely fuck over, these laws were designed to fuck them over mm-hmm. and to stop them from having any semblance of power in their own country. So the penal laws pissed people off, both Catholic and Presbyterian, but what happened in the 1790s was they were looking across at France and many Presbyterians in Ireland, or even quite a few Church of Ireland members, they saw it was unfair. They saw it didn't ideal with it didn't line up with the Republican ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity. And so they wanted to change things. Um, and they formed in 1791 in Belfast a group called the Society of United Irishmen. And their idea was, and it's a very noble idea to this day, is that all of the religions of Ireland would live in peace and harmony. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to achieve this through peaceful means. They had the intention that they were going to kind of like petition the government, try to get people elected who would change the laws. Right. Okay. This sounds like Simon Coveney would have been part of these guys back in the day. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe maybe at the start. They wanted a reform of the Irish Parliament, right? They, they, They wanted to become MPs, they wanted to try and dampen down the penal laws as much as they could. Mm -hmm. But, um, so this was uh, 1791, they formed, and for the first number of years, they were very peaceful, no bad shit. But in... in 1793 or 1794, the British went to war with France, right? And the same as many, many other times throughout history, they believed that any um, agitation in Ireland would um Ireland would automatically side with the French and then they'd have a problem from two sides. Mm-hmm. So the, the British banned the United Irishmen in 1794. And they began even looking... though even though so they banned them even though they were still peaceful at this time, they were like trying to petition the government. Yeah, they banned them, yeah. Okay. They were like no more side of United Irishmen. So Spanish bye. Um fuck off basically. Yeah. So that just pissed them off. Yeah. Um, that just pissed the society of United Irishmen off. And they were like, Do you know what? Grand. If you want to go, we'll we'll go. Like so then their ideas were not peaceful after that anyway. Cash me outside, how about that? Kind yeah, cash me outside, yeah. precisely. So our big our big boy here now for Irish Republicanism is a guy called Theobald Wolf Tone. I'm sure Wolf-tone. most people have heard of the Wolf Tones, the band. Yeah. Who are named after him. Mm-hmm. And Theobald Wolf Tone was a um, Protestant um solicitor who in the years prior to forming the United Irishmen had written a pamphlet called um, a a pamphlet to the subversion of Catholics in Ireland or something like that and it was basically being like he was a Protestant and he was basically being like look lads the Catholics are fine like would you not just leave them alone they're grand they're not doing any harm to anybody would you ever give them their rights they're lovely lads she's a lovely lovely girl and he's a lovely fella so they were like Wolf Tone was chill um when he joined the Society of Young Irishmen, he was totally peaceful. And after they banned the society, he stated his purpose as, and I quote, to subvert the tyranny of this execrable government, to break the connection with England and to assert the independence of my country. Okay. So he just, he was like, he was like, do you know what? We tried it one, we, we tried it one way. It's not working. Fuck you. Let's try it the other way. Uh, so I'm just, went, I'm just sorry to make it, to make a, um, uh, a modern or a contemporary, not modern, uh, reference to what they've done. It's like, I don't know if you saw in Israel, they like banned um, 
they banned uh, NGOs that were working to give uh, Palestinians aid and they called them terrorist groups for no other reason. So it's like, you know, uh, it's kind of, you, you're, what they're doing is they're cutting off peaceful methods of um, survival, basically. But that's what colonizers always do. Yeah, yeah. So um, Tone went to France and he kind of, he knew this guy called Lord Edward Fitzgerald, who was the son of an English lord, but was also um, in the United Irishmen and wanted freedom for Ireland and freedom for Catholics, even though he himself lived in an extraordinarily privileged position. He could see that the people around him didn't and he wanted to change that. So Lord Edward and himself went over to France and Lord Edward introduced him to some French generals and um, some members of the French parliament. And he spoke to them and he convinced them to send ships and soldiers to Ireland. This is Wolf Tone now. Yeah, okay. and Lord Edward. Okay. Two of them went over and Tone managed to convince them to send um, ships to Ireland. So this guy called General La Hoch, which I can't pronounce because I never did it for days French in my life, he sent um, ships from the port of Brest in France and when they arrived at Bantry Bay, there was a terrible storm and they were blown out of Bantry Bay and they couldn't land. I think I um, remember the, the ships, story, yeah. Yeah, a good few of the ships broke up so they went back to France because they were fucked. Right. And the Irish, um, understandably, were really like were really uh, desperate for these French soldiers because they were professional soldiers with professional guns and professional cannons and everything else. But unfortunately, he's a real boy with real shoes and real clothes. I want to be just like him. Yeah. And because we didn't get the French help. Um, due to the weather, the main <laughs> main fighters in the rebellion um, made, were made up of uh, boys and men um, from like the poorest backgrounds. Um, right. All they had were, were pikes and um, there were uprisings all over the country and um, the, the British employed some really dodgy tactics to mm. um, to get people to surrender. So they like pitch capped people and half hung people and mm. like did really 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 bad shit um and they they they, they beat down the rebellion and um, the french actually sent another force fair play to them and that force managed to get off um and they fought the british in longford and they beat them um but then the british came back with even better strength and unfortunately they did they didn't beat them and and then wolf tone himself was like fuck this noise i have to go to ireland so he he left um france and he was caught by the british off the coast of donegal um, he refused to escape the captain offered him a ship and said you can go before they get here and he said no i'm not going to do that um he was brought to Dublin for trial and um, where he knew he would be found guilty and he asked to be shot like a soldier um, and he said to contend against British tyranny I have braved the fatigues and terrors of the field of battle I've sacrificed my comfort have courted poverty have left my wife unprotected and my children without a father all this I have done for a sacred cause death is no sacrifice um, the British court refused to grant him death by firing squad because they deemed that he was not a soldier, even though he was a soldier in the French army. And then he took his own life um, because he wanted to, to die his own way, I think. Shoot um, me like a soldier, don't hang me like a dog. Shoot me like an Irish soldier, do not hang me like a dog. For I fought for Ireland's glory on that dark September 
man. Yeah, precisely. And that's that's the tack that he took. And Ulf Tone is known as the father of republicanism, Irish republicanism in particular. Um, and he began, um, popularised, I suppose, one of the tenets of Irish republicanism, which is the willingness to lay down your life for your cause. So um, he... Shortly after he, he died in 1803, there was another rebellion um, by another United Irishman called Robert Emmett that was also put down by the British. And Emmett made a really impassioned speech from the dock where he basically echoed what Tone had said. And he said that he had no problem laying down his life for the cause of an Irish Republic. Um, and this is something that we see from Tone's death to all the way to um, modern Irish republicanism really is this thing, this central tenant that you should be willing to lay down your life for the republic. Mm-hmm. Um, so Tone's journals were printed by his son in 1821 and were adopted by another revolutionary movement called the Young Ireland Movement, who had an uprising, a failed uprising in 1848. Um, and they split into two. So This is where I wish I had a diagram, Uh, but basically Irish Republicanism is like one box at the start and that splits into two boxes, the parliamentary tradition and the physical force tradition. Okay. So the parliamentary tradition is people that we might, that we would associate with people like Parnell, who were determined to But he had a great name to be associated with parliamentary Parnell. Perfect. Yeah. Charles Stuart Parnell, absolute PIMP, but was very much um, was very much in it for tone at the start. So he basically was like, we need to do this properly. We need to go through the proper channels. We need to go to Westminster and we need to to sort this out politically. So that's right. one branch. And the other branch then is the physical force tradition. Um, which we'll I'll talk about now in a second. But with the parliamentary tradition, um the MPs now had to go to Westminster because in 18, after the um, rebellions, they passed the Act of Union, which basically meant that Ireland lost its parliament. So as a result of the 1798 uh, rebellion, they took away our parliament in Dublin and they made all of our MPs go to Westminster instead. Okay. So just just to point that out. That's a long commute. In the 1850s. That's a long commute. Talk about being stuck on the N7. Imagine getting a fucking boat to to London in the 1800s. Jesus. They would have just, they they would have just mainly kind of lived in London, really. Yeah. And and gone back. And I'd say it would have been mainly train. And actually, Ireland's train network in 1850 wasn't bad. Hmm. Believe you me. It genuinely wasn't. It was only after the Republic, uh, it was only after the the Free State was declared that they started fucking up our fucking train system, Mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it split into the physical force tradition and the parliamentary tradition. And the physical force tradition founded the IRB, or the Irish Republican Brotherhood, in 1858. And this is where people are probably going to start hearing names of groups that they recognise. Right, okay, okay. Yeah. So, So, okay, okay, we'll pause now for a second and just take this all in. Circa, you are just a well of information. So I've learned so much. It's just so, so much learning. Okay, so Wolf Tone, he's like the granddaddy of, of Irish Republican. He was like, babes, don't like this at all. We shouldn't be doing this. I'm going to go to France, talk to my buds, and they're going to send some lads over. We're going to fight. The lads were like, yeah, we'll fight. We'll send over some fiends with some guns. 
it rained a lot and then they were like lads it's too cold we can't the ship it's fucked we came back there was loads of rebellions but we only had pikes instead of guns which not ideal and a lot of it was quashed and then France sent over some more lads with bigger guns some success but ultimately it failed and then Wolf Tone was like alright bye fucking go back and do it myself and then he came back but he got caught and he was like fucking whatever man <laughs> we're gonna win in the end hang me if you are fucking make sure you shoot me though don't hang me they were like we're gonna fucking hang you and he was like I'll fucking hang myself and then he died and then right oh sorry what yeah. oh shit yeah. okay yeah not good well, not good they pl- okay. but actually one one i suppose good thing and i think tone genuinely would see it as a good thing was because he slid his own throat and took a week to die he was plastered all <laughs> over the newspapers all over right Europe. okay yeah it's like people, it's like, like it's, people in french and germany would have known who he was you know the delayed death it's like the it's like the the hunger strikes the delayed death is really like fucking captures people's attention exactly so then, then his son publishes journals and then there was, um, they were like, all right, yeah, we're going to like, try, the Irish were like, right, we're going to try and do this independence thing. And then there was a split into like, people were like, let's listen, they're not listening to us. We're just going to have to fucking bait him into giving us independence. And the other lads were like, no, no, we can work with them. And yes. so that's when we see this split. Yeah. Okay. So... Split and the Irish Republican Brotherhood is formed in 1858 um, and their oath actually includes lines like I will do my utmost to make Ireland an independent democratic republic so okay. this is kind of the first time that we really see um, uh, um, like the, the United Irishman's oath wasn't um, wasn't like that this is the first time that we see an oath that explicitly kind of says a democratic independent republic this you is know, by the I, 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 IRB, IRB. And sorry now. Yeah. Again, as I said, my brain. Who's the other? Who are the other group? So there, the other group is actually made up of lots of little groups. Sorry okay, about okay. that. Okay, sorry. No, 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 that's fine. But what did you call them? <laughs> so United. I the parliamentary. The parliamentary movement is the lads who are like, we'll do this peacefully, and then okay. the physical force movement founds the Irish Republican Brotherhood. Right. Okay. So the right. Okay. So the we'll just call it the parliamentary groups, and then the IRB is like the the. One letter away <laughs> from being <laughs> the other lads. Okay, okay, cool. cool, cool. Yeah, we're getting to the other lads. Yeah, now, we're though. just moving up letters, um, right? A, B, we're, we're plan B, now we're going to plan A soon. Okay, cool. So the IRB um, also have great connections with America, um, which stands to and has always stood in Irish Republicanism's favour in that there were a lot of people of Irish descent living in America who wanted a free, independent, democratic republic in Ireland. So they formed their own group called the Fenian Brotherhood, and they, like, they bait English people in America, <laughs> and they raised money, and they had dances, and they, they kind of encouraged, like, tried to encourage people to learn Irish or continue to speak Irish, but um, really, a lot of them were kind of hooligans, to be honest with you. Oh my the god, this just, I'm just like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry if this is offensive to you, Mogby Bap, Agus Makara, but kneecap is just giving kneecap, you know? Just oh, like, really? It's small on kneecap. No, no, I love them too. I'm saying like they, they're just fucking raising hell and just like pissing people off. 
Yeah, and actually, probably we'll talk about them um, a little bit mm-hmm. uh, in another podcast, I think, because they're very interesting. In case they're. you don't know, kneecap are an Irish language rap duo yeah. from um, Federstaff from um, from Belfast. Yeah. And they have fabulous music on Spotify. Check them out. They're yeah. brilliant. Yeah. So these are the so, Fenian Brotherhood are over in America, just like Raising Hell and encouraging culture and raising money. Okay, this is the 1900s. Yes. So we're moving like late 1800s into the 1900s now. And in the 1900s, the parliamentary tradition had actually been making some headway in the British Parliament, genuinely had. And they had been agitating for home rule. So they'd been agitating to get the parliament in Dublin back. The parliament that was taken away after Wolf Tone's rebellion, they wanted it back. Who's they? Um, And the the parliamentary groups. Okay, so the parliamentary groups, okay. Yeah, so people like John Redmond... Um, he wanted a, a, a parliament in Dublin so that a little bit, um, it's actually ironic, what, what, what uh, Northern Ireland ended up with, where they have their own parliament, but their big, 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 big decisions are taken by Westminster. Nice. Um, and people like John Redmond, um, they, they believed that this was like the first step mm-hmm. to getting a proper independent government would be just to get a government in Dublin and then move to move away from Britain get the structure up and running uh, like yeah okay yeah exactly so there the British government um were supposed to give us home rule in 1912 right okay but the unionists in the north really did not like the sound of that home rule is home rule Home rule is Rome rule, right. precisely. Um, and they began um, organising into um, volunteer groups, but that were made like by unionists for unionists. And they imported a huge amount of guns from various places um, and landed them in Northern Ireland. And then like paraded around with their guns, basically sending a message to the, the British government, being like, if you try to include us in an all-Ireland republic, you are going to have a really shitty time because mm-hmm. we've got guns now. Right. Um, so that's like 1912, 1913, and then obviously in 1914, we have the outbreak of World War One, and the British attention is very quickly taken off of Ireland and onto um, Europe. So they're not really paying attention to what's going on in Ireland. And uh, there is this kind of saying in Irish Republicanism that is um, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit like the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, you're all distracted now. You can fuck off. Yeah. So in 1916, as most people know, there was a rebellion in Dublin called the Easter Rising, which was militarily a failure. But after the Easter Rising, the British papers made a very silly uh, mistake and they called it a Sinn Féin Rising. So they said that Sinn Féin, the political party, had essentially organised this entire rising, which was not true. And because of this and because of the martyrdom of the all the people, a lot of the people involved in 1916, um, the public opinion began to turn very much against the British um, obviously, in some households, it was turned fully against the British for the last 150 years. Mm-hmm. But in other households, it really wasn't. And people were thinking with, with their economic brain as opposed to their Republican brain. Oh, my brain. God. I'm and, sorry now, but excuse me. Are you talking about 1916 or are you talking about 2020? I'm not sure. Haha. <laughs> <laughs> ha. You're so funny. Yeah. Um, basically, um, a lot of people, particularly in Dublin, after they saw the destruction that was wrought during 1916 Rising, they didn't want any more. They were like, just fucking stop fighting. I just want 
want to live. You know, I, I just want to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but after they executed the signatories and after they executed people who really had nothing to do with it and they called it a Sinn Féin rising, um, support for Sinn Féin went through the bloody roof. Mm-hmm. And um, in the next election, the majority of the people elected were, were Sinn Féin representatives. And in um, in 19... Uh, ah, sorry. Then, then the, the the war of independence began not not long after. Um, in the on the twenty first of January, nineteen eighteen, the um the first oil was formed, and at the same day, the first shots of the war of independence were fired, and this began the war of independence. That I'm not really going to get into right now, and I'm not even really going to get into the civil war either. But just to say that um after after the war of independence, there was a civil war, and um there was the anti treaty and pro treaty sides. Um, but partition had actually already happened. So even mm-hmm. when people were pro-treaty or anti-treaty, they weren't even really thinking about partition. And um, the Ulster Unionists had gotten what they didn't want, which was they got their own parliament instalment, which mm-hmm. they had fought foriferously against um, for for years. So it ended up being quite ironic. But Essentially, what happened now was that um, partition was imposed in the six counties and by May 1923, the War of Independence and the Civil War were now over um, and Ireland was now a divided free state. So the British hadn't given you given us independence. Um, it was that we had bait them into a corner, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they looked so bad on the world stage due to the actions of the Black and Tans and the British soldiers that they had really no choice. Um, like Lloyd George said that if we didn't sign the treaty, he would bring um, a terrible war down upon Ireland. Um, and because we were very dependent on getting guns and ammunition from outside of Ireland, uh, the IRA felt that they couldn't continue indefinitely like the British could. Right, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now, that doesn't mean that IRA men were for the treaty. Yeah. Um, it just means that they did understand that um, eventually the British would overwhelm us with such force that they were going to run out of ammunition, barring getting another place to get ammo. You know, yeah, like, this would be another this would be like this would be another cluster, essentially, instead of like a full outbreak, if that makes if I'm making sense, like this it would have been quashed like we saw when you were talking about um the tyrannies in europe earlier where like there was a burst there was a moment this moment would have been over because britain would have come and quashed it and it would have probably another another moment might have come later might have been 20 30 50 maybe even 70 years later maybe even 100 but they wanted to basically have that moment now and not for it just to be like you know what I mean? Like they were, they yeah, were being I think kind of. That, I think that some people were so fatigued by mm. the previous almost um, seven years of war that they they just couldn't do it anymore. You know, yeah. and then I think you had another side that felt that we are so close, like we are so fucking close that we just need to we just need to hang on a little bit longer yeah. and, and we'll we'll do it. But unfortunately, that's not what happened, and the North was partitioned. And Ireland became a free state and there was um, a bitter legacy left in Irish politics for decades. Mm -hmm. I think even still now, there are still people who will hark back to the civil war of 100 years ago when they talk about political decisions. You're just like, shut the fuck up. It's so long ago. Mm -hmm. Um, De Valera, who had strongly supported the the anti-treaty side, sought now to republicanise Ireland from within. 
So he accepted the he he accepted what had happened, um, and he was now basically saying that um he was going to get Ireland out from under the British Empire because we were a free state, not a republic, right. and that wasn't good enough. Can so, I can I just ask there? So when we talk about Sinn Fein, I I've seen this discourse on Twitter. It's like all the par- so are is the Sinn Fein party you're talking about here? Was that like that's the parliamentary wing? They weren't. They were in opposition to the IRA at the time. So, so or I, IRB or IRA. Sinn Féin was formed um, in the early 1900s. Okay, mm-hmm. and the only thing of Sinn Féin, like Sinn Féin, literally means we ourselves. Yeah. And the whole thing was that we want to rule ourselves. That mm-hmm. was the only. That was the only only real aim, right? Obviously, there was the Gaelic revival and getting Irish language back in and stuff like that. But their main aim was we want to rule ourselves mm-hmm. and. Every every um, Irish MP who sat in the first, every Irish TD who sat in the first Doyle was a, was a Sinn Féin MP, right. TD MP, yeah. every single one of them. Yeah. It was only after the wars were over that you start to see the emergence of modern political parties. Right. And Sinn Féin at that time had a lot to do with the original IRA. Mm-hmm. like the OG IRA, the lads who were fighting in the fields mm-hmm. um, and shooting black and tans and stuff. But once the likes of Fianna Fáil come in the Gael, Fianna Gael are formed, you see Sinn Féin disappear, essentially. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you don't see them again for another 40 years, okay. um, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, de Valera decided that he was going to republicanise Ireland and the way to do this was to get Ireland out of the Commonwealth. Okay. okay, so he, in 1932, so we've skipped ahead a bit, the wars are over, de Valera is now firmly um, in his political kind of heyday, I suppose you'd say. So what he does is he starts picking apart all of the laws that connect us to Britain. So say the governor general, the British had a governor general in Dublin and uh, de Valera just repeatedly called the governor general to the floor of the Doyle and humiliated him until he left. And the British didn't replace him because they knew that de Valera would do the same thing to the next uh, governor general. So that was like one one thing that he did. He also got rid of the Oath of Allegiance. And over a number of years, all the way to um, 1949, when Ireland declared itself a republic. Um, And then just a couple of weeks after Ireland declared itself a republic, uh, Westminster changed their law and made what's called the London Declaration, which admitted republics as members of the Commonwealth. But Ireland was like, fuck you, I don't want to be a member of the Commonwealth, Mm -hmm. you can fuck right off. So Ireland never became a member of the Commonwealth, which I'm very glad about. Um, And then... A couple of uh, weeks after that, they passed the Ireland Act 1949, which said that Northern Ireland would continue to be a part of the United Kingdom unless the Parliament of Northern Ireland, the one that sits in Stormont, decided to leave, which was never going to happen. Because, uh, no, it was never going to happen at that time. Because who who sat in the Parliament at Stormont? The majority of them, all of them were, yeah, Ulster, Ulster Scots unionists. So that is where... <laughs> Maybe we should edit that, <laughs> that part out. And who was at the topic? Protestants. <laughs> okay, we're not going to use the P word today. We're going to say Ulster unionists. I'm like, okay. Ulster unionists, yeah. <laughs> we use that bit more PC-friendly language. Yeah. So um, this is where you see 
even though our constitution laid claim to Northern Ireland and said that you know Ireland is a 32 county republic, etc., and um, you see that after 1949, people just in the south just give up on Northern Ireland. Really, there is a small border campaign by members of the IRA throughout the 50s and early 60s, but by and large, they're a shadow from the past for people who live in the south. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, I think. We definitely should get into this another time and talk about the Joe Barley scandal. I'd love to get into it a little bit more in depth and talk about the media because I think that would take a little bit of research uh, on my behalf of going into the Cork City Library that has like all of the papers from all of the years printed and bound. And you can just go through like I was looking at them. I think it was September and I was paying attention. I was just like, you know, because I was reading um, I was reading all of that, so, like some articles, and I was always interested, like what's on the other, like there. So I was reading newspaper clippings, and then on the other side, there'd always be different articles, you know. So it'd be like, oh, what's going on at this day in like two thousand and or nineteen forty or whatever. But I, you know, like Joe Brawley's comments. I'm not sure if everyone has. Have you seen them? Have you? Did, I have. Yeah. You did, yeah, yeah. So anyone who's listening to this has probably seen the whole Joe Brawley thing. But like, um, people are like, oh, I've never heard that like talked about explicitly, and um, I could just go into a pa- into a paper at any time and show you, just the way they present the story is how is what he's talking about. It's not that everyone was out here going like, we're leaving the United, uh, Northern Ireland behind. We don't care about it. It's this like uh, continuous tone and how how it's talked about or even if it's talked about at all and from whose perspective and all that. So I think that would be um, an interesting conversation but probably needs requires a lot of proof It'd be a critical essay for sure. Um, but yeah, what were you saying before I interrupted you? So, no, I was just saying that kind of in 1949, after Ireland mm-hmm. actually became like a proper republic, um, the, people in the north became less important mm-hmm. to a lot of people in the south because like it actually, I would advise anybody to look up on Google the night Ireland became a republic because like O'Connell Street is just there's not an inch there's every I'd say every single person in Dublin was out in the streets that Mm -hmm. night like it was a huge cause of celebration that finally after 850 years we in the south were free of the yoke of Britain and people I think that after that was achieved a lot of people kind of sat back on their hands and went ah Ah, we're done now. It's to say, it happens, Not, like, even with feminism, happened with feminism. White women got their rights, they sat down, you know, like, okay, we have them, by, And it would be another, like, few decades before black women got their right to vote, like, in in America, for instance. Um, so... Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Um, and I think that, as I said, a lot of people just sat on their hands and um, for, forgot that 300 miles up the road there were people living through the same conditions that we had lived through for such a long time where Mm -hmm. they had no say in the way that they were ruled the way Mm -hmm. that they were governed and I think that the the Republican movement in Northern Ireland from 1950 onwards is a different podcast because Mm -hmm. while it follows a lot of the tenets of Irish Republicanism 
they took Irish republicanism and because of the conditions that they had to endure, the ideas began to evolve. And while they're still rooted in the likes of Wolf Tone and Napper Tandy and Robert Emmett and the Young Irelanders, it went down a completely different path. Oh, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm going to talk more about that in another podcast. So essentially what our podcast today, I hope, brought into um, your lives was the, my lovely dulcet tones, yes. obviously, and Christina's. But the, the difference between classical republicanism and in particular Irish republicanism um, and if you have any knowledge um, on things like, I suppose, the, the republicanization of any of the African countries, I'd be really interested for um, somebody to come on and talk to us about that because it's not somewhere that I have expertise. But I also know that in the years following the Irish declaration of a republic, um, the British Empire began to fall and a lot of its former colonies declared independence and became republics themselves. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know from somebody outside of a European perspective, because that's where my um not expertise but that that's where I know the most about I'd love to hear from people who um live outside of that Mm -hmm. and have stories about their own country's move to republicanism because the Irish in my mind the Irish republicanism stands out as very different from other countries around the world but that could be also my ignorance you know What, what would you say would be the characteristic that makes it the most different I think the explicit um, martyrdom that is present right, okay. in Irish republicanism is a bit different from obviously classical republicanism doesn't involve martyrdom but other other freedom fights around the world like was it a was it a republic that they were they were gunning for as much as what we were gunning for because you even see this all the way up to the 1980s in the hunger strike there is a certain reverence still given to people in Ireland who who martyred themselves um you know you have Terence McSweeney who died after 71 days on hunger strike in the 1920s and he said it is not those who can inflict the most but those that can suffer the most Mm -hmm. and I think that that has an awful lot to do with our history of suffering um that people are are willing to literally starve themselves to death Mm -hmm. like you look at like people like Ho Chi Minh who was inspired by Irish republicanism and said, you know, that the Irish guerrilla war was something that really, really influenced him in his decisions in Vietnam. And you also have people like Che Guevara saying that Terence McSweeney um, and his hunger strike showed what somebody will do for something that they believe in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'd just be really interested to know if other people from when you, the world... When you were talking about De Valera, like, oh, this this isn't this, this isn't a direct comparison, but... Um, I just, when I was reading about Che Guevara, um, uh, the relationship between like Dev and Michael Collins just reminded me so much of Fidel and Che, but in a different light, you know, a different life, like a different iteration of their relationship. But it was just interesting that when you were saying there about like Dev wanting to dismantle all of the connections, you know, like, oh, and what happened was we became very independent not not independent but isolated and it's yeah and it's interesting that that isolation also is attached to maybe like the martyrdom so like you have one person who is like the the isolated man who is like the the icon and also the country itself has been isolated whereas in the case of cuba cubana cubana um they even though they 
they were isolated. They didn't isolate themselves. They took great, they took, uh, they made a lot of effort to try and not only retain economic ties to America, who would have been their Britain, um, but like to try and get them back at every point. Like they didn't want to be isolated at all. Um, and I mean, they actually did make, I mean, arguably, I don't know if you've ever listened to this podcast, you'd really like it. It's called Blowback. It's about American imperialism. Season two is about Cuba. And like I, there's a lot of the JFK stuff that I had no idea about. I'm going to read the Khrushchev, um, JFK letters. Yeah. (laughs) But like basically this, this, this podcast, um, uh, kind of makes it out that JFK was coming around and that's the reason he was shot, but I digress. Um, so yeah, I was just making that comparison. It's like interesting that the isolation, as a country also became an isolation as like, you know, the isolated man, um, in our culture. That's, it's interesting because it's not health. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think you can have like, if you, if you're a democracy, if you want to be a democracy, I don't know if you necessarily can have like individual, you know what I mean? Like Dev pursued protectionism after we became independent before mm-hmm. we became independent in the 1930s and in particular during World War Two, because he was really afraid that um, Britain were going to use World War Two as an excuse to reinvade Ireland mm-hmm. to come here put boots on the ground and then after the war was over not to leave you know mm-hmm. so in that sense during that time protectionism made sense mm-hmm. for our own protection literally but after World War Two, he continued down that vein and literally yeah. every any economist worth their salt any basic economy student economic student will tell you protectionism does not work it is bad policy and it's no wonder that we ended up in a situation where you had you know families of 15 kids with no fucking running water Mm -hmm. and people living hand to mouth when there was no development anywhere in the country and he was just like we'd all be pretty maidens dancing (laughs) by the crossroads like you know i i was gonna ask there oh feck it i'm clean out of my mind now um Oh, what was it? Oh, keep talking there. It'll come back. <laughs> like I just, I just think that wasn't really until the nineteen sixties when Ireland began to actually open up even a tiny bit, mm-hmm. and it really took until the nineteen nineties for Ireland to open up to um, enough that people from other countries and other cultures began moving here in bigger numbers mm-hmm. like obviously there were always people from other countries moving here to, from from the 40s onwards but in bigger numbers and enough that uh, we simply had to change the way our society was because of all these ideas that were coming in from the outside you know right, yeah. in, in a good a very positive way I'm talking about this like it's a super positive thing but I'm just saying that prior to the 1960s really Ireland had been in a time capsule mm-hmm. yeah. yeah we were a republic and yeah we were independent but we were also like a third world country practically because yeah. of how how poor our economic um prospects were and that was all down to that protectionism policy you know i was going to say what i was going to say would you call the church in that situation where like dev was basically like please dad take control of everything we just swapped one colonizer for another would you call that like would you say that that was 
tyrannically like or despotism that they were kind um, of like in the no, not, shadow control? Not in the, no, not in the typical sense, but I definitely think we just swapped one colonizer for another. Mm-hmm. We just swapped the British for the church, you know? Yeah, um, but I, again, I like I want, after reading The Best Catholics in the World, he makes such great points in it where he says, we have externalized the church to mean Rome when actually the church meant um, Irish Catholics, like Irish priests and the Irish church. I think that not necessarily the... the Wrong. I think that the, the whole thing you see the, the, another another tenet of Irish republicanism is it's inextricably bound with Catholicism mm-hmm. and we spoke about this in our nuns podcast where after Catholic emancipation the church began to take on all of the societal roles in, in Ireland so right, they yeah. took on like health education um, and, and things like social care and stuff like that and that uh, bound people to the church with such fervour that um they're very hard to pull apart even now yeah you know yeah like um and I know what you're saying that obviously like everybody almost everybody in the Irish church was an Irish person and we did this to ourselves and we locked people up and we allowed them to treat us like this for for 60 fucking years but at the same time the people who got in at the ground or the foundation of our state the ground of our state they were old white men who might not have been sent by Rome, but everything they were doing was approved by Rome. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I know that that they relied on Irish, ordinary Irish people to, to carry that out, to carry out all of those uh, social care. I don't even think you could call it social care because um, no, there was no caring about it. But, you know, like the, the likes of Archbishop McQuaid, like he was... Rome was fully informed about what he was doing. Right, fully, but Derek Scully makes the point that, like, actually Rome cared far less about Ireland than Ireland cared about Rome. Like, you need, I'd love for you to read this book because I think it, 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 it like, definitely opened my eyes. Um, not saying that you're wrong or anything, but it's just that, like, I think it's a new book, a new perspective of, and a new, to- like, a new investigation yeah, into like- the story. Like every 10 years gives you hindsight yeah. on something that yeah. happened even 120 years ago. Yeah. And I'd love to just wrap up this podcast yeah. by just telling people about an amazing new initiative that the government of Ireland is undertaking, which is they are digitizing a huge amount of land records from um, like the 1400s onwards. So I am actually giddy, like I'm literally giddy, giddy. to see these digitized records. I am so, so excited mm. uh, because as I like, you know, the records probably won't be digitized for another, like properly for another two years because of the amount of work that it takes, but they're beginning to digitize them now. And like I just said, like 10 years gives you such hindsight into history, you know, that I think that we are definitely going to discover things in these documents that blow the cobwebs off what we thought we knew. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like, as you said, Derek Scally's mm. book, if Derek Scally had written that book 20 years ago, it would have been a very, very different book because even in the last five, six, seven years, we've gotten access to documents mm-hmm. and we've gotten access to mm-hmm. materials that we didn't have before that totally blew the lid off what we thought we knew. So yeah. I'm really excited for those to come out. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for listening, guys. And thank next... You podcast um we're trying to i'm not sure our next podcast might be another form of government or it might be a continuation of um irish republicanism and how it relates to northern ireland let Um, us know which one you would prefer i think we're going to do voting like how voting works here um and potentially we'll touch on the american system as well just because i think 
I think we pay attention to it and we don't know how it works and it's related in a way, but it's, I mean, American politics is really important to pay attention to, in my opinion. Um, so it's good to know how it works because I think they're also like a fucking canary in the coal mine in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and talk then about like voter suppression and gerrymandering in both uh, jurisdictions, but especially in the North, uh, in Northern Ireland. So yeah, I think awesome. that's what we do next. And then maybe, thank you guys so much yeah. for listening. Okay, thanks very much for listening, guys. It was a long one, but I think we got some great information. But you see, one thing I'll say, Circa, you've definitely helped me like structure all of these like things in my head of like when the timeline is. You know, it's like you learn all mm. the, these things growing up, and you hear it when you are an adult, but you're like, I don't know where in the timeline that slots so it's kind of like eh um so i think since since the bla- the the plague one that we did and a few more i've been like oh okay yeah i can this is around this time I right see it now. is there I a star for me okay right thank you very much for listening and um, we'll see you all the next time